What makes a life a good one? Is it the adventure you have? Or the friends you find along the way? Maybe it's pursuing your passion while striving to protect, defend, and save what you believe in every single day. So what makes a life a good one? In the Coast Guard, we think it's all of the above and more. But you'll have to find out for yourself. Visit GoCoastGuard.com to learn more. Welcome to Stand Up Speak Up, a Canadian-made podcast highlighting important social issues and giving a voice to remarkable people. It takes a special person to be a leader. One thing historians have questioned for years is the apparent mental instability of both great and terrible leaders alike. Do the qualities that mark those with mood disorders also make for a strong leader? What traits are common among them? Dr. Nasir Gami looks at this very topic in his book, A First-Rate Madness, uncovering the links between leadership and mental illness. Gami is an academic psychiatrist, author, and professor of psychiatry at Tufts Medical Center in Boston. He's written a number of books on mental illness and mood disorders, and has contributed to many other published works. Host Carla Stevens Tolstoy talks with Nasir today, and we'll hear specifically about three leaders and their struggles with mental health. Dr. Martin Luther King, Gandhi, and John F. Kennedy. Note, we apologize for Carla's poor audio quality in this episode. It was due to a last-minute issue that couldn't be resolved in time for recording the interview. Thanks for joining us on Stand Up Speak Up. Dr. King had depressive periods throughout his life. He had them um, probably beginning when in his childhood, around age 12, and then until he died when he was 39. When he was 12, he jumped out of the second floor window of his house twice, this one time and then six months later. And it was always viewed as a suicide attempt by him, by him and his family. Um, in fact, there was a biography, the first biography written about Dr. King came out in 1960 when he was like 30 years old. And uh, it involved interviews with his family. And, and that's the way they described it. That they, they saw it as a suicide attempt. So he was definitely... Um, impulsive and at least uh, the word sensitive is commonly used by people who knew him when he was younger you know but you know jumping out a window doesn't usually means you're you're very unhappy and he landed on some bushes so he wasn't hurt and it was kind of brushed off but he later in life he, he seemed to have periods as well in college there was a time when he probably was was very down. It was in the context of a breakup of a relationship with a white woman that he was involved with. And, and then later, uh, when he was 25, you know, he was very young when he graduated, uh, got his PhD and started working as a minister and, and got involved in the civil rights movement. He also had periods after that from 25 to 39 when he would be, the, the way things would work is that he would not be able to function for a few weeks to a month or so. And it wasn't so much that people said he was sad, although he was, but it was more that he didn't have any energy, he didn't have any interest in things, he was sleeping a lot, he was eating a lot. And these are all classic depression symptoms. He often would go in the hospital. In fact, I interviewed one of his personal friends who was a physician who treated him, who said that he hospitalized him once a year uh, in his for about a decade in his adult life. And most of this was kept outside of the public eye. Uh, there were a few hospitalizations that were documented. 
And then in between these periods, where for a few weeks or a month, he'd be really low energy, he was actually a very high energy guy. He only needed about four hours of sleep at night, was very talkative, was very humorous. He was very, very funny. His closest friend, Ralph Abernathy, said that if he, if he didn't become a civil rights leader, he should have become a stand-up comedian because he was, he was so funny. And he had a very high sexual drive, as, his, as the FBI documented so well. He had many, many sexual affairs uh, for about a decade running. And constantly while traveling, he was on the road uh, in airports and in hotels about half the year, about 100 to 150 days a year. And usually when he was traveling, he was giving multiple sermons or speeches. And he was so high energy that his staff would, would uh, send multiple, would send more than one person to be with him, usually young aides in their 20s. And then he, they, one person would get worn out and go back to headquarters in Atlanta and the other person would replace him and stay with him. And would then, you term him as manic? Did he ever get diagnosed as manic? Not as manic, but he did get diagnosed as depressed. So okay. the, the last year in his life, he had, his depression got a whole lot worse. There was a lot of political pressure on him, and, and he knew that he was being targeted by the FBI and by others, that, he, that he, his life was in danger. And before he was killed, you know, he was very aware of what was going on. So there was certainly a lot more pressure on him that last year. But in that last year, he was very, very depressed, was drinking a lot, and probably was suicidal at times. There were, there were occasions, for instance, where he was standing near a balcony in a hotel where one of us, when Abernathy said that he, he grabbed him because he was afraid he was going to jump off. His doctors diagnosed him, his personal physician at that point diagnosed him with uh, depression and, and recommended psychiatric treatment, which is something that I discovered in the course of my, um, my interviewing that hasn't been reported before. So yeah, he was diagnosed with depression at the end of his life. Uh, what he, he was never, people didn't really appreciate that his general high energy, high activity baseline uh, involves manic symptoms. As we would define it as currently clinical diagnosis. We call it hyperthymia, which is being high energy all, all the time. Same thing that I described in the, in the symptoms of um, John Kennedy, Franklin Roosevelt. We see the same thing with Dr. King. So how would all those attributes have made him become you know, a famous legendary leader? Well, it's, it's you know, I, I always like the phrase necessary but not sufficient. In other words, it's not just that he had these attributes that made him a great leader, but it was certainly very, very helpful. And it might, in fact, be viewed as, uh, as part of the, the mix that you have to have to be a great, great leader. So the manic symptoms, as I described in First Rate Madness, make you more creative and resilient to stress. And the depressive symptoms are associated with increased empathy and realism. So if you, if you start with the manic side, Dr. King was extremely resilient. I mean, this is a person whose the stresses that he faced in his life uh, were far beyond what most people would tolerate, especially in the setting of, you know, being constantly at risk in terms of his physical safety, his family safety, being threatened a lot. Uh, from the very beginning, you know, the, the, in, in, in Montgomery, as soon as he got started, they bombed his house while his, he had a baby in the back and his wife and baby could have been killed. So he, he, his father tried to convince him at that point to just leave the movement. There were many occasions, even after he became well known, that he could have taken a year off and, you know, taken a deanship at a seminary and, and you know, cashed it in as most people do. But he never did that. 
and the 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 FBI was uh, really quite stressful to him the last few years of his life, and, and and he knew he was being followed, and his sexual affairs were being documented, and all that. But despite all that, he was uh, kept going, and so I think it. Part of what makes him special is this resilience, and I don't think he would have been that resilient if he didn't have manic symptoms as part of his basic character. And in terms of the depression side, you know, my view is that his whole philosophy of nonviolence is a politics of radical empathy. And I, I don't think it's an accident that Gandhi and King developed this approach, both of them being very depressed individuals at various phases in their lives. They had a, a radical empathy towards other people far beyond what most normal human beings are capable of, you know, and they put it in, in King's case, he put it in religious terms, often in Christian terms about loving your enemies. That's a, a perspective that's been out there for a long time, obviously, but he really, really took it seriously and applied it not in his personal life as well as socially and politically, which is very difficult to do. And he was serious about it and he was willing to give his life up for that. So I think that grew, grew out of the level of empathy that, that was very profound that came out of his experiences with severe depression. So that's my, my view. So what was he like to be married to? I mean, what kind of husband would he have been, father have been? I mean, because he would have been very moody. Yeah. So, you know, I've interviewed a number of people who knew him, and people are, as with Anyone who's been who's alive or recently alive, often a little defensive to protect the reputation of someone who was a public figure, especially if they had enemies. And so, typically, people would say he was a great father, a great husband. He really loved his kids, and that's all. And he loved his wife. That's all true. He he definitely loved his children a lot. He cared about them. Towards the end of his life, when they were his boys were just old enough to be able to. To, to travel a little bit, he, he even took them occasionally on his some of his trips. But he was never around when the kids were going to school. He totally left it up to his wife to decide which schools to put them in and where to send them. He paid no attention to their uh, education or their kind of physical needs. For instance, they never owned a house. They never owned a car. They always rented. They had a small house in a kind of still rather transitional area of Atlanta. He didn't, you know, put his kids in better schools and than others around there. And some of that was philosophical. He he wanted to make the point, like as Gandhi lived simply, that he was going to live simply and and, and live out his philosophy. So he was not hypocritical about it, which was great. But it, his family, his kids, did suffer some, and um, really didn't have anything uh, while he was alive. And in terms of his wife. There's no reason to doubt that he had a great deal of affection for her. They were very close, both personally and politically. She was very politically active from the very beginning. And that was, I think, a big part of, of why he uh, was attracted to her. She supported him in this very dangerous life that he ended up choosing to live. And without her support, you know, he probably couldn't have, have lived it. A lot of other uh, wives might not have supported him and he might have had to separate. So the fact that they were able to live this life together and that she carried on his legacy after he died so so effectively speaks volumes about about their relationship at a pretty profound level on the other hand he was sexually not faithful to her um, consistently throughout their marriage and she either knew it or she was in deep denial about it but everybody else knew it 
yeah, I just keep thinking, you know, sometimes like those that have to depend on someone that has those traits. I mean, like it would have been so challenging. It would have been so challenging, especially if his wife loved him and she did love him. Right. She thought he was amazing and he, he probably just continually, she had to just keep thinking bigger picture. Right. I think I, it's hard to know. I've, I've interviewed people who were very close to her. Um, and one person in particular who was very, very close to her was adamant that she n- never admitted that she knew that he had been unfaithful. So either she really didn't believe it or she was just in a lot of denial about it. Either way, I think she, you know, that was her, her way of, of coping to look the other way and believe that their relationship was solid. And it, and it was in a way, it's just that, you know, he, my take on this is, and I think King himself was very ridden with guilt about his sexual behavior and, and, and his, to his closest friends, he either wouldn't talk about it at all, or he would talk about it some, but was clearly very guilty. My take on it is that, is that the manic symptoms that he had all the time as part of his personality, you know, the pluses we've talked about, one of the negatives is he probably had such a high sexual drive that it just was not manageable for him. And he had scenarios, lots of scenarios where women were available to him, throwing themselves at him, and um, he couldn't resist. And the, the manic symptoms drove him farther than he would have wanted to go if he, in principle. Um, and I think that, to me, that's one way of thinking about putting this together, that he he really did love her, he did love his family, but he also was a little manic, and that made it difficult for him to, to keep up to a strict moral code that he would have liked to, to maintain. Yeah, because a lot of uh, manic bipolar also, one of the things is that they have a very high, intense sex drive, right? That then goes hand in hand, right? But do you think that if he was around now, how would he be affected with all this Me Too and sexual harassment. Well, I think the whole movement, you know, it's, it's pretty well known that the civil rights movement was very sexualized. It was, you, you could view it as, as related to the sexual liberation movement at the same time, but it was very sexist. The, the women in the movement were treated uh, as inferior. And he treated, he treated Coretta very traditionally. She was a housewife. She stayed home. She took care of the kids, even though she had a lot of political activities and interests. During the movement, she was not active, and he, he rarely let her, for instance, march with the movement in marches. And the, the young women who worked in the SCLC, the Southern Christian Leadership Conference, which was his, his organization that he headed, you know, the secretaries, there were lots of stories about them getting hit on by the various activists in the SCLC, and there were many people who were having affairs. And the women were, I think, these were not, they were consensual probably, but there was a, there were definitely aspects of pressure and there were definitely differences in power. So I think viewed these days through the lens of what, what we are evolving to these days, the way that they acted and behaved back then would have been considered very, um, very sexist. I mean, do you think any of that will start to come out now? I mean, they're going back and looking at people. Well, it's already been out. It's really just a matter of reinterpreting what, what's been out. The problem, the issue is, you know, applying our standards to the 1950s and 60s is really not fair to them from a historical perspective. But it, it's relevant from the perspective of just saying, you know, this is actually what happened, you know, in terms of the way people want to look back on it from their current standards 
maybe we can't blame them because they have different standards, but this is actually what happened. I think we can, we can say that. There was also homophobia in the movement too, which was pretty strong. Uh, Dr. King was not the worst, but he was not. Uh, there was there was um, scenarios where some of the one of the leading civil rights activists, Bayard Rustin, was gay, was openly gay, which was very unusual back then. And uh, Dr. King was not supportive of him. So, you know, I think he was a man of his times in terms of sexism and homophobia. He was definitely way ahead of his times on racism, but but the other issues, he was not not ahead of his time. Yeah, it's kind of interesting eh? because he's so legendary, but he was far from perfect. Far from perfect, which is, you know, part of my, the theme of, of my work is I understand these leaders more. And look, when you look into their psychology and their psychiatry, when you look at them from not just the, the you look at them socially, but also medically even, everybody has pros and cons. Everybody has strengths and weaknesses. And this is just, it's, it's to be expected. These great leaders are going to have flaws and weaknesses like everybody else. Makes them human, makes them more believable, makes them, you know, people that we can relate to, I think, better. And the other part of it for me is and when you look around at people today or people in the future, we tend to think we're, that the era of the giants was always in the past because, you know, when you look at people who you know or who you, you see around you, you see their flaws. But that's only because we imagine that people in the past didn't have flaws <laughs> they had it too so uh we have just as great leaders around now and we'll have them in the future as long as we can appreciate them and having these kinds of flaws is is not a major reason to view them as as incapable of great leadership mm-hmm. it's like such a i mean that must be really interesting to work on that book because he's such a complicated person right there's so many different aspects to him right I mean, the more I looked into it, I started out like most people thinking of him as kind of a cardboard figure, kind of traditional Christian, uh, you know, a little uninteresting in a way. But the more you dig into him, he's a very, very complex man. And I've gotten more and more interested in him as I've studied him. And I've grown much, much more respectful of him as I've learned more about him. And I've become much more impressed by his ideas and his philosophy of nonviolence, the more I understood him. So... For me, it's all good. You know, it's all better. Do you think that he liked himself? Did he always see himself as not being good enough? So it's it's hard to disentangle some of this from the the guilt around the sexual behavior. But one of his closest friends said that he was an extremely guilty man who never felt truly worthy of all the adulation that he received. Uh, especially after winning the Nobel Prize in 1964. And there's some sense that maybe after winning the Nobel Prize and the successes of the that era with the Voting Rights Act, Civil Rights Act, that the last two or three years of his life, he, he got much more radical, much more active against the Vietnam War and other things that, that was not popular. His, his activism was not popular at the time. That maybe he was trying to compensate for winning the Nobel and getting all this adulation, feeling that he really didn't deserve it. And, and in a way, sacrificing himself, putting himself at, in harm's way more than he needed to. I think it's possible. That's, that's, that's certainly the way he seemed the last five years of his life. Whether he was always that way is another question. I think in his college and graduate school years, he, 
people who knew him then say that he came across as a, just a very nice, very humble and very pleasant person and didn't seem to have a lot of depressive attributes in, in terms of his general personality. He wasn't down on himself most of the time. He seemed to have a healthy self-esteem. He was very calm. And one the word that people repeat you know, long before he became a political leader was his humility. He had a lot of humility towards other people and, and never saw himself towards other people as better than them. But it wasn't, I think, a sense of low self-esteem. I think it was more just the empathy is my, my sense, that he just saw people as equal. And that stuck with him when he became famous and well-known. That's another feature that people emphasize is that what was diff- one thing that was very different about him than other people who were leaders was that he was very humble and he was just very nice to everybody from the janitors on up to other, other leaders. So I think he was probably rather good in his self-esteem most of his life until the last four or five years where I think he did struggle at that point, probably with increasing depression, but also with a sense that he didn't deserve all the adulation that he was getting. Do you think because he had so much empathy and he cared about people, do you think that translated him into being a good lover, a generous lover? Did you get to talk to anyone or what was he like in bed? Yeah, I didn't talk to anyone who had relationships with him but one or two people have talked about it and they've even written about it one person apparently the person that he had his final romantic relationship with was a former state senator in tennessee an african-american woman and she wrote a biography within the last decade you know she's older now where she described her relationship with him to some extent and he comes across as very uh, very respectful and and you know some of these were one night stand fling type things but a lot of them were actually ongoing relationships with women in different places like there was a, a woman in los angeles rumored to be the wife of a prominent person out there another woman in new york so when he would travel to these different places he had these ongoing relationships with these women that he would see and he would be interacting with in, in between those periods as well and from what what one, one gets a sense that he truly cared about them. So yeah, there was there was a set, there was an aspect to this which is not just the sex, but actually uh, a, an emotional relationship with different women. Just a quick interjection. I'm Zach Tolstoy, one of the founders of Stand Up Speak Up. Our podcast is just one part of the Stand Up Speak Up brand. We are supported by an online store of the same name where we sell a variety of artisan products. We have an ongoing blog series with over a dozen contributors, and we offer a series of interactive workshops. Throughout the different iterations of Stand Up Speak Up, our core message and purpose have always been the same. To create a site that allows our customers and us more opportunities to speak up about and support causes organizations and groups that we're passionate about and that of course could use additional support. My mother and I have learned about allyship over the years from what feels like a thousand and one places and people. We want to encourage members of this fantastic Stand Up Speak Up community to come along and learn with us. So along with our team, we created this workshop featuring videos, articles and exercises that have really helped the two of us in our own journey towards allyship. Don't worry, it doesn't cost any money, and you don't need to make an account to access the information. 
We want to make our workshop as accessible as possible because we believe in our message and understand the importance of spreading awareness. The Ally Workshop is split into eight parts, including interactive quizzes and helpful videos. It's intended to introduce you to new skills and courses of action in the world of allyship. The workshop is easy to use and can be done entirely on your cell phone, tablet, or computer at your own pace, with each of the eight sections taking an average of about 15 minutes or so to complete, or a breezy couple hours on a Sunday afternoon. When we return on Stand Up Speak Up, we'll hear about the mental health of two more leaders, Gandhi and John F. Kennedy. In any given year, one in five people in Canada and throughout the world will experience problems with their mental health. The Stand Up Speak Up podcast works to raise awareness and reduce stigmas around social issues such as mental health. Our guest today is showing us that even the most successful people in the world can suffer from mental health issues. There's nothing to be ashamed of. Help us start the conversation and end the stigma. Check out the Stop the Stigma collection at StandUpSpeakUpApparel.com. Not only can you raise awareness by wearing one of Stand Up Speak Up's unique designs, you'll also help us produce more podcast episodes just like this one. Now back to Carla's chat with Nasir Gami as we look at the mental health of another famous leader, Gandhi. He had similarly to Kang this period where when he was in that pre-adolescent, he was had thoughts of not wanting to be alive and went to the point of almost taking poison with a friend and then backing out the last second. About the same age as King, around age 12. And then he describes one of the benefits with Gandhi, unlike King, is that he wrote a lot about himself. So he has, you know, his autobiography and the volumes and volumes of other writings where he, he actually does talk a good deal about his inner mental life. And he describes that you know, at that time that he made this attempt, he or almost a near attempt, it was out of a sense of shame. Um, but you know, the, that's that's potentially one re- reason why he felt that way. Later in his life, there were other times when, like King, he would just become non-functional, stay in bed, wouldn't get out of bed, no energy, uh, and this would last for a, a week or a few weeks, just like King, relatively brief. But sometimes so severe, doctors would see him and they would say that there was nothing wrong with him or it was all in his head. At one of these times in the middle of his life, he said he was convinced he would die the next day. And every day he would wake up surprised that he was still alive. So I think it's reasonable to infer that these, these periods, which were not medically diagnosable with, with any other physical cause, are consistent with, with periods of depression. And then in between these periods, just like Dr. King, he was a very high energy fellow. I mean, he's very famous for going on long walks, partly because he had so much energy. He didn't sleep much, didn't need to sleep much. And he um, wasn't particularly talkative, uh, unlike King. But he did have, he did tend to have um, a low need for sleep and a high energy level. Now, in terms of his libido, he describes in in his autobiography that he had a very high sexual drive. And especially high when he was younger, but he claims that he became celibate partly because his sexual drive was so high that after a, a certain amount of time, you know, he was married, he decided to become celibate uh, as part of his general philosophy of renunciation of a, of a lot of pleasure. He was only like 30 or so, I think, when he decided to do that. And the question is, you know, how did he manage it for the next 40 some years of his life? 
you know, he lived in a communal setting. So unlike Dr. King, he couldn't really have affairs and things in different places. He didn't travel to hotels. Uh, he lived in the ashram and everyone saw him. And as far as we can tell, he remained celibate. But there is this issue of uh, later in his life where he would ask for young women to come sleep with him in his bed. Some of them were relatives of his. And the, the claim he said was that he was testing his resolve to see whether he really could remain celibate. But uh, some people in his circle, women in his circle, some older women in his circle who were with him for, for a long time, like one of them at least, resigned from the movement because she felt that what he was doing was um, you know, unacceptable. But it's unclear whether what I mean, actually. That, that sounds a little messed up. I mean, <laughs> the, the poor person that has to be the one that's laying in the bed hoping to God, he, you know, hoping that they're God, um, if he's going to remain celibate. I mean, can you even imagine? Because it'd be quite young girls that he'd bring into bed and they would come in naked. And he would be naked. That's really kind of messed up, right? It, it sounds like it, you know, and, and it's hard to, to hear that and not think that there must have been something that happened. But, you know, there's no smoking gun so far that has emerged about what happened. Why does it not get more talked about? That just seems to me pretty significant behavior. The other thing about Gandhi and that doesn't get talked about much is he was not a very good father. You know, his eldest son really hated him. Now, people blame the eldest son, Harilal, and they say, oh, he just didn't like his father and rebelled, he became a Muslim for a while, then he, be, he, he was eating meat, and, but he be, ended up being homeless. And, um, you know, his grandsons and others are, have other sh- stories about him. But I, I think it's not surprising, you know, that, I think it was Lenin who once said that the revolutionary has to give his whole life up to the revolution. Um, you can't blame a revolutionary for not taking care of his family. I think that's probably true. There's, it's hard to be a very, very good father and be attentive to your family and lead a worldwide movement of change that's, that's massive and is resisted by the British Empire you know, and so on. But that being said, it's just a fact that he was not very available or helpful to his family, his kids. And his wife, you know, again, I think he was pretty distant from her personally. So I think those are aspects to who he was as a person that need to be taken into account. In, in India, you know, when, when my book came out, First Ray Madness, when it came out in 2011, it had varying reactions. There were varying reactions to it all over the world. But in India, the, the reaction was totally focused on Gandhi and was totally defensive uh, about Gandhi. A couple of newspaper articles that came, came out, you know, and so the, he's their saint. They want to pretend that he was perfect and that the current society there growth is a reflection of his philosophy, which it isn't. Just like in the U.S., we want to pretend Dr. King's perfect and that our current society reflects his philosophy, which which it doesn't. In both cases, they. Are, in part, our societies have reflected the influence of King and Gandhi, but only in part. And they're very important parts where we haven't. And uh, it doesn't help to just have these leaders be, you know, half real and, and in the distance because we can't really live up to their the good the philosophies that they had, which were excellent in terms of political and social life. We can't live up to that. 
if we don't really uh, know them for, truly for who they were with their positives and their negatives. In the case of, of Gandhi, their negatives are, the negatives are very personal, but they're there. I, I mean, he probably felt he had a lot of demons to fight. And I think one of them would have been his desire to, to have, you know, sexual fantasies or relationships with a young girl. Did he have the same fantasies for boys or was it mostly just girls? Not that I know of, not that I've heard. Uh, I think it's just girls. You know, Gandhi had a very, just like Dr. King was a evangelical Christian. A lot of, I think, people on the left of left wing wouldn't want to admit that. Uh, his, I think his father called himself, Dr. King's father, Martin Luther King Sr., called himself an evangelical liberal. And that's probably, that would be a good description of Dr. King. Now, you and I may not buy it. I'm not Christian, so I don't necessarily buy into any of that. But even if you were Christian, you may not buy into the evangelical Christian Christianity. And Gandhi was a very, very observant Hindu. And his Hinduism was very liberal. He, you know, he was very supportive of Muslims and untouchables and all that. But he was a Hindu, and he bought into a lot in the Hindu tradition that for some Westerners are, are going to be difficult to accept, some of which has to do with this renunciation, this belief in renunci- renouncing a lot, of some, uh, a lot of pleasures in life. You know, so George Orwell famously wrote a very critical essay on Gandhi emphasizing this point and just pointing out that he, you know, he is a very Hindu Eastern per- person and that a lot of his ideas just don't agree with Western values. And I think that's a good point. That doesn't mean that you would, that's a reason to say that he's wrong on his political and social uh, ideas, but it's true in terms of his, his personal values and his, a lot of his religious beliefs. He came from a very, very different tradition. I mean, I know that you have not studied Obama and so I, I take it with a grain of salt, but I mean, he just seems so normal. Can he be that normal to have gotten to the level he has? He just seems like he loves his wife. He loves his family. He's a good person. He doesn't even hardly swear. He takes the odd smoke. I mean, is there any indication Usually when things look too good to be true, they are. And uh, it will take time. Usually people who are current leaders or recent leaders, the facts aren't out. You know, the things that we just talked about relating to Gandhi and King were not well known when they were around. So um, there's a new biography that just came out about Obama. And the link here is it was written by David Garrow, uh, G-A-R-R-O-W. And I recommend it to you. Uh, David Garrow was also the first major, well, not the first, but he was probably the, the most well-known major biographer of Dr. King in the 1980s. And I know him and I've interacted with him in some of my research on Dr. King. Garrow was the person, for instance, who, uh, who documented and just for the first time really proved that the FBI had engaged in a long campaign to, to try to defeat Dr. King. He also documented really well Dr. King's sexual uh, affairs. He's a very careful historian. In, in terms of Obama, he, he did this recent biography, which was it's very long, but it's very detailed. He interviewed a lot of people in Obama's past, and he brought out some facts that had never come up before. Uh, one of which, for instance, is that Obama, when he was younger, had sexual uh, you know, romantic relationships with uh, a number, a couple women. His closest girlfriends w- 
tended to be were not black. They were either white or they were Asian or they were mixed, but they were not African American. And you know, he at least thinks that the the evidence he brings out is that that a major reason why Obama got married to um, Michelle Obama had to do with political calculations around um, being electable, uh, needing to have a black family uh, to be electable. Now, that doesn't take away their personal relationship. They may well love each other, and, and, it's, and it's a very good relationship. But it's not, perhaps not as purely romantic as it might seem on the outside, that there were some, some social and political calculations in the mix as well. Okay, so then if we go to JFK, that's another one that I, I feel like people are very protective of him. Whenever I mention even just passing to someone about, you know, your book and JFK, people get quite defensive. Um, no, I don't believe that. That can't be true. And I'm like, okay, but but why do people feel the need to hold on to these leaders being being perfect? You know, I think I think this is... As part of it grows out of the stigma, you know, the idea that it, it, the idea that no, it couldn't have been this way assumes that him having had manic symptoms or depressed episode is a bad thing. So they start there and then they say, oh, then he couldn't have had it. If we can switch the stigma around and at least get people neutral on it, someone might have manic or depressive symptoms or episodes and it's either a good thing or at least it's neutral, it's not bad, then they can be open to whether it was the case or not as, as easily as they would to say he had Addison's disease or he had some other physical illness. So I think a lot of it's just the stigma. It's interesting. I, I had first heard of Addison um, from your book and then my dog was diagnosed like four months later and people are like, how do you know what Addison's is? I'm like, JFK had Addison. But maybe if you could explain a little bit of JFK, JFK. I mean, it's very similar to Martin Luther King, except for JFK had more physical ailments as well. I mean, it's very interesting how they're almost identical, except for the physical. Yeah. Well, you see a lot of similarities between the, the leaders because the illness in the end is one illness. I mean, there are variations within the illness, but there's going to be some commonality because uh, manic depressive illness, once you have it, will express itself in a similar way in, in at least certain aspects. So again, uh, Kennedy had, I think, hyperthymia, mild manic symptoms as part of his baseline temperament, personality. You can trace this back to his adolescence and young adulthood all the way forward. And all the time, high energy, very talkative, very funny. The, the sense of humor is a, a major feature of hyperthymia. Extremely funny, very high libido, again, dating back to adolescence and young adulthood. You know, a lot of times people will say, oh, well, they have all these sexual relationships because they're men in power and they take advantage of women. And that's true, but they had these, this same level of high activity when they weren't in power when they were younger. And the issue with Kennedy was that he started out with this baseline high energy, high activity, high sexuality, very charismatic, very talkative, humorous, very sociable person, personality. And then in his late teens, he got sick. He was, you know, in bed, no energy, couldn't function, and would have a high fever also, uh, and a lot of get diarrhea and gastrointestinal symptoms. For a couple of years, he was worked up extensively, and they couldn't figure out what it was. He had to leave high school for a while. He had to take a year off in college, and 
you know, the family joke was that he was so sick all the time that if a, if a um, mosquito bit him, the mosquito would die. He was in hospitals a lot, and his father was very concerned about him and spared no effort to, to get the best medical evaluations. It's just that he had Addison's disease in retrospect, and the doctors didn't have a means of diagnosing it well easily, and there were no treatments for it. Then around 1950, when he was in his mid-20s, and by then he was a congressman, actually he might have been before that, just before he became congressman, he got diagnosed finally with Addison's disease by a specialist in England, and there was no treatments available, and at people who were diagnosed with that were given essentially a terminal diagnosis that they would die on average within 10 years. So, you know, he got that diagnosis, he got that prognosis. He was a early 20s. As far as he knew, he was going to die in his 30s if he was lucky. And he just went ahead and decided to try to live his life as best he could with the time that he had given to him. That, I think, is, again, part of that mild, manic personality. You're forward-looking. You're very resilient. And he lucked out in that about five to six years later, uh, the antibiotics had been developed and were available and steroids uh, were more developed and available. And both of those uh, treatments saved his life when he would have what's called Addisonian crises, where your Addison's disease is where your adrenal glands don't produce enough adrenaline. You need the adrenaline, which is a steroid, to, to live, especially for your immune system to function. So it's kind of like having you know an immune system disease like AIDS or something where you would be prone to infections, and then these infections get out of control and they kill you. If you can't treat the infections, which they couldn't treat them before 1950, there were no antibiotics. But finally, you know, he was able to use antibiotics that would save his life. They got steroid injections when these uh, events would occur. And he, he got steroid treatment on a regular basis to prevent the Addisonian crises. So that's how he lived through the 50s when he was rising in prominence. But one of the other things that Addison's disease is associated with is depression. There's much higher rates of depression because... You don't have enough adrenaline. Adrenaline is in the brain. One of the tra translates into one of the neurotransmitters that are needed to not be depressed, to keep your mood normal. So he had periods of depression in the fifties. So they would last a few weeks, sometimes longer. Sometimes he talked about wanting to drown, to, to talk about ways of dying, and he thought that drowning was the best way to go. Then he would come out of it, and he'd be back to his high energy baseline. His steroids made his high-energy baseline even higher because steroids cause manic episodes and symptoms. So he ended up uh, evolving into this. The situation evolved such that he was better, he was alive, but he was kind of unstable in his moods with the steroids lifting his moods too high and the Addison's predisposing him to have periods where he was down too. And um, that's how he was when he got elected and to, as president. And he managed it by getting his doctors to give him more steroids when he was feeling down. But also probably he was abusing the steroids in the sense that he knew that they would increase his energy and activity and his sexual drive even more. And he was given intramuscular testosterone injections rather regularly uh, for, the, for a number of years. And that's probably a factor in the first part of his White House uh, career where he was a rather unstable president and was jittery and agitated and not very effective. And in the last year of his life, um, his doctors got his steroid use under control. They reduced it. 
and he, he was much more stable and much more effective as a leader. I feel like your book, your position, your your research on this could actually change the face of mental health and how people view it. People are love to hear about successful people that have challenges. Yeah, I think that's. I think that certainly could happen, and um, that would happen if that happened. If, if people came out, I think we are still going to have a pretty high uphill uh, road to go with the stigma and discrimination, though. And um, you know, the, the, I think the beginning is to just make it clear that these psychiatric conditions, man depression in particular, have positive aspects and not just negative ones. This has been Stand Up Speak Up's interview with Nasir Gami. Just ahead, our show wrap-up, where Carla tells us why she was so interested by Dr. Gami's book. You can find show notes and resources for this episode at StandUpSpeakUpBlog.com. Thanks for listening. How can you look at me that way? You used to be innocent too. Picking for me the inedible fruits and bring them back home to chew. Our music selection today was from Mary Brett Lorison called Johnson City. Now, our show wrap-up. The reason I was so captivated by his book, and I read his book like a few years ago, and I remember just feeling like it's okay to be different. You know, because you have this like this ideal in your head as a leader, like what you should be and how you should act in your emotions and leaders. You're supposed to be super strong all the time. You know, there's so many rules for good leadership and just even being in the senior roles I've been in and been coached by other senior people and professionals, there's a lot of weight on your shoulders to never show weakness. And I guess when I would feel weak, there'd be a few of my executives I felt comfortable 
bringing into my circle that way. But a lot of time you feel like it's political warfare out there. So if you show any weakness, you'll get like just moved aside because it is really, I don't think people understand that. And I'm sure government's the same in corporate. It's, it's a survival of the fittest. I mean, you have to be very politically savvy. You, you have to be your on game a lot of the time. It's just, it's like people think, oh, you know what? They make good money and like, why? I mean, there is an emotional toll leadership takes on you and having to appear like you got it all figured out. So when I read his book, I was like, okay, you know what? Maybe my, some of the issues I face can be advantages and maybe, maybe why I was able to deal in difficult situations is because I could kind of ride out the waves and know there was light at the end of the tunnel. You know how he talks about that a lot? Yeah. And I think that was, that's one of the big takeaways here is maybe inspiration is the word for people who do suffer from these types of things is that you can go on to do, you know, be these types of successful people. I was first of all, surprised to learn that there was this kind of connection among leaders in the first place. That was, that was interesting to me. I mean, they're basically all bipolar. I mean, the top, top leaders are bipolar. That's what was very consistent, right? Yeah, and like you just said about your work, what what you went through, did that help you kind of deal with more rough situations? That was something I was interested in knowing, which I don't think we talked about too much in the episode, is what is it actually in these people that that makes them good leaders? You know, so we, we've established that there are some common traits that these uh, mental health issues are common among leaders, but what? how does that relate to the qualities of being a good leader? Where does it all come into play? Well, I think that if you've suffered any type of depression, you start to get comfortable in dark places and you have the faith that hope is around the corner. And I think when a business or a country is going through difficult times or extreme transition or challenges, you are comfortable in that space of things not being perfect, but knowing that they can get better. And that how you get them better is by working at it and not giving up and not giving into the darkness. And I think that's what what kind of makes an amazing leader in transitional difficult times. You have to be uncomfortable to grow. And I think with people in that have mental health issues are constantly uncomfortable. So they're constantly growing. Like it's a constant. And they have to be so adaptable to their moods. It's really, it's, it's very interesting. And people that have to live with people with mental health issues have to be very, very much chameleons, which is another skill set. You know, it's just the whole thing is very interesting. That's why I, when I read his book, I just loved it. And I just was like, this is like everybody should read this book. Every high schooler should have to read his book. It should be mandatory reading. Thanks again for listening to Stand Up, Speak Up. You can find us online at standupspeakupblog.com. We'll see you next time. Have you ever thought, I'd love to have a podcast just like this one? Well, I can help. My name is Matt Kundal, and everyone at my company, the Sound Off Podcast Network, had a hand in making this show. Whether it was about the sound, the discoverability, or that you're just enjoying the show, we are all about the detail. 
If you think you have a podcast in you, reach out to me via email, matt at soundoff.network. Or check out the website and become one of the great podcasts we work with at soundoff.network.